Hello, you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Today on the show, we'll be covering Monster Legends Part 2. From the vampiric Strigoi of Transylvania, the unholy Draugr from Viking folklore, to the terrifying Native American Skinwalkers. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Enjoy. first monster is kind of a bummer. Nobody likes bad stuff happening to kids. But the Myling was formerly a normal human child. The Myling wanders through the night all through Scandinavia. They're the revenants of children who were abandoned to starve to death, or even infants left for dead. In the old days, when poverty meant an imminent threat to survival, an extra mouth to feed could be the difference between life and death for a family. And since there was no real contraception or birth control, unwanted pregnancies were far more common, which would bankrupt the family to provide for the child and raise it. Also, since mainstream society was mainly Christian, it was not only illegal to have a kid without being married, there was also no separation from church and state. So it was literally against the law. Children born in this manner were shunned by their peers as walking blasphemy. They were considered abominations, and the mother of a bastard could be severely shamed. Most of the children who perished and became myling were female, sadly. This is due to the ignorant and archaic opinions that it was better to have a boy than a girl. A boy being far more profitable and reliable than a girl to them. So, if one of these old-time families could only afford to raise a child or two, it wasn't uncommon to leave infant girls to die in the wild. But in all cases, a myling is a restless, sometimes vengeful revenant that was formerly a child, abandoned or killed in remote areas for either being unwanted or unable to be cared for. In Finland, they're called Utbird, or Ihiteriko, which translates to that which is outside, which is referencing the unspoken secret family practice to commit child infanticide. Even more disturbing about the ancient dark practice is that there are still some cultures in the world that practice it till this day, and at certain times in history infanticide was practiced all over the world. It's said that because these children were never given a proper burial or burial rites, then they rise up as these revenants. But the Myling also seek vengeance for their treatment during their short lives. They have been known to haunt the dwellings of the parents who abandoned them. They stalk the area of their death or the area of their birth. Common themes in Myling encounters is a lone traveler coming into contact with one in remote areas on the outskirts of towns or villages, on desolate roads near dark woods, or in abandoned places and homes. Myling look like the undead revenant they are, with a decayed, gaunt appearance, and having flesh tight, wrinkled, and close to the bone, appearing terrifyingly skeletal. They silently stalk the night, filled with the pain of rejection and abandonment. The size of a myling is far greater than it was when it was alive, giving them a stunning, visually disproportionate creep factor. It will stalk around its target with much better stealth and speed than what would be thought, 
then jump on the back of its victim in an unbreakable vice-like grip. A miling doesn't just kill you immediately, though. There's a way to survive, but it's not an easy task. The miling wants to be buried properly on consecrated earth, so carrying the child monster to a graveyard or crypt is the only way to survive. As the undead thing hangs on your back, it just stares at you with its oversized black glossy eyes. And hopefully there's a graveyard nearby. Because as you carry a miling, it increasingly gets heavier and heavier. If walking across mud or soft ground, it can get so heavy it'll make you sink as you go. Some sources say this is actually the miling slowly but increasingly sucking away your life energy. If the victim can't get the miling to a graveyard before dawn, it will go into a rage-fueled frenzy and violently murder you. But if you can get to a graveyard before dawn, the miling can be at rest, and you'll survive, but most likely be traumatized to the point of insanity. Some people are born Strigoi, and some people become Strigoi after death. In Romania, people are still commonly knowledgeable about the Strigoi. In fact, Bram Stoker was originally going to have his vampire from Austria. That is, until he discovered the tales of the Strigoi from Transylvania. So, this monster's had a pretty decent impact on pop culture. But the Strigoi are nothing like the vampires that are popular to portray today. The modern world sees vampires totally different than how our ancestors saw them. There's nothing regal, elegant, or seductive about a Strigoi. But this is the monster that our modern versions of vampires are very, very loosely based on. Just like how those based on a true story movies have extremely little in common with true accounts of that story. Strigoi are said to have ruddy complexions more in line with decaying bodies, which is different than the pale-skinned ones popular in modern times. The fear of Strigoi was so prevalent in Romania, they would dig up human corpses from their graves at the tiniest suspicion a dead person was actually a Strigoi. I mean, they did this a lot. To the point the church was getting really grossed out and asked them to cut back on their grave digging. That's because exhuming bodies from the grave is one of the best ways to spot a Strigoi. For example, if they dug up a person's grave and, within the coffin, the corpse showed little signs of decay after being buried for a while, then that person was definitely a Strigoi. And the definitive sign someone was a Strigoi was if the only thing to rot off in its grave was their nose. They're often depicted with a bald head with cloved hooves and a tail. According to legend, no matter how horrific a Strigoi is, it may alter its appearance to appear reasonably human at times. This is normal in Strigoi tales, because in many stories the monster can almost live out its life as a normal human. They've even gotten married in tales, having Strigoi children, and basically living among normal people. Female Strigoi were even known to prey on men in cities like a black widow spider, but not all of them could alter their appearance to fool people. Most were stuck looking pretty scary. Some returned from the grave to reunite with the former lover they had in life, and continued their relationship in a new necrophiliac way. 
Still, some Strigoi do have the ability to straight up shapeshift. And funny enough, the first animal you'd think a vampire would shapeshift into isn't on the list. The bat. Instead, they can shapeshift into wolves, dogs, owls, cats, or a moth. There are Strigoi who are not undead and are pretty much alive, though. The ones born from a Strigoi parent who was posing as a human do not immediately take on their undead form, but they are guaranteed to become an undead Strigoi when they do eventually die. People could also be born as a Strigoi through supernatural means or ill omens. The living Strigoi would steal mana from people, or animals. In Romania, mana is the life force energy in people, like chi or spirit, which kills people if enough is taken, just like vampires sucking blood. They also know dark magic, taught to them by the undead Strigoi. In more modern vampire tales, you can kill it by stabbing it through the heart with a stake. This won't work on a Strigoi. But in Romania and the surrounding areas, there are a lot of different ways to deal with an undead Strigoi. One such way in southern Romania is to cut the heart out of its chest when you dig it up, then burn the heart, and you and your family drink the ashes. The whole stake through the heart bit was actually to nail the stake through the corpse and into the coffin wood, pinning it inside. But this didn't kill the Strigoi, it just trapped it. In other areas of Romania, people insist you gotta hack up the monster's body into bits, then burn every piece. Because if a single bit wasn't purged in flame, the Strigoi could regenerate its entire body. The safest way to stop a Strigoi from bothering a community is to simply trap it. Like putting tons of stones above its grave. And there's always ways to protect yourself against Strigoi attacks. A huge weakness they all share is to be obsessive-compulsive in bizarre ways. Like, if one is charging you, you can throw wrinkled clothing or cloth at them, and they would stop from attacking you to neatly fold it. Or, if there is one in your house across the room, you can throw rice or beads or marbles or whatever on the floor, and the Strigoi will stop and feel compelled to count them, giving you time to escape. One of the ways to keep them away is correct, though, from our modern vampires. They really don't like garlic. Hanging garlic in your windowsill will keep them out of the house. You can even rub garlic on yourself or on your animals to repel Strigoi. And unlike our modern vampires, the undead Strigoi don't just need blood to survive. They can also eat human souls, or just normal food as well. Estragoy's greatest instinct is to sustain themselves, and would gorge themselves like a tick on the blood of the innocent. The Japanese have some of the craziest and interesting monster legends out there. I mean, seriously. If you like weird and awesome, yeah. They're great. The Gashidokuro is a yokai from Japan. It's a giant skeleton that roams the countryside at nighttime. Their teeth chatter and a sound of rattling bones emanates off one when there's no prey around, or they're unaware a person is present. But if they notice a human, they become eerily silent and sneak up on the person with incredible speed and stealth. They can seem to pop up out of nowhere 
like someone could be standing on a balcony looking out into the night, turn around, and when they turn back, the eyeless sockets of a giant skull be there looking at them. They also hunt lone travelers on the road, or will basically go to any human they randomly come across. They'll reach out and pick the unsuspecting person up with their giant skeletal hand, and crush them in it before biting off the victim's head, then drinking their blood. And the Gashirokuro don't do this to people because they need to feed. They only do it because they enjoy it. When they're done, the victim's bones are absorbed into the Gashirokuro, adding to its size. The monster is made from the bones of people who have died from starvation, soldiers' bodies rotting on some forsaken battlefield, or people who died in the wilderness. They're basically an amalgamation of people who were unable to receive proper funeral rites, or just unable to pass on. These people become hungry revenants, who greatly covet and desire what they once had in life. The emotions remain strong, long after the flesh has rotted away from their bones. And as their bodies rot, it only increases their rage and negative emotions until it turns into a very powerful force of malevolence, an overwhelming grudge against the living. The bones of hundreds of dead can gather and merge into one another who share this grudge, turning them into a single supernatural force of hate and envy. The oldest known legend of the Gashirokuro goes all the way back a thousand years ago. It tells the tale of a rebellion whose leader had a powerful sorceress as a daughter. When he died, his daughter continued the rebellion. She used her dark magic to summon a Gashirokuro and bind it to her will. She then sent the monster to attack an important city which terrorized its occupants. The Gashirokuro were much more common to manifest back in the days when the life expectancy of Japanese people was much shorter. Without unending wars, famine, and people constantly dying, there isn't enough angry dead to form one. Which is good, because they're unstoppable and impossible to defeat. They only cease to be when the negative energy that formed them has been spent. They burn out eventually like a candle. The only real way to defend yourself against a Gashirokuro is to not travel or wander around the countryside at night. Celtic folklore, there's a spectacular monster known as the Dullahan. The Dullahan is a horseman who has no head, and has elegant black leather armor that would give off the impression of nobility if not for the malevolent design. At its right hand, it carries a long whip made out of human spine, and in its other hand, it carries its head. The head of the Dullahan is the color and texture of moldy cheese, or stale dough with very smooth skin. It has an idiotic grin from ear to ear that's permanently expressed on its face. Its black eyes dart around constantly, really never at rest. Its head gives off an otherworldly illumination of light, allowing the dual hand to use its own head as a lantern, able to guide it through the darkest roads of the Irish countryside. It's a harbinger of death, and only bad things will come from an encounter. Its decapitated head has supernatural sight, and is able to see vast distances away, and into the darkest depths of nature. 
This gives the dual hand the ability to spy on people and find the houses of those who are soon to die. Those who see it as it passes by have blood thrown in their face or go blind in an eye. The dual hand's horse booms as it gallops down the dark roads of the countryside, snorting out flames from its nostrils as it flies by. The creature's disembodied head can only speak once every hellish journey it takes, and the only thing it's able to say is the name of the person who is very soon going to die. It can stop at the spot where the person is doomed to die, or the horseman will go right up to the person's door, then call out that person's name in a haunting cacophony. The Doolahan is most active on Irish feast days, so on those days it's best to stay inside and close the windows to avoid it. If someone must travel at these times, it's best to carry gold on you of some type, because the Doolahan hates the metal, and gold has even caused it to vanish in encounters. The origins of the Doolahan are up for debate. Most believe it's the embodiment of a pre-Christian ancient Celtic god named Krom, a deity who demanded yearly sacrifices of humans through decapitation. Despite Christian missionaries trying to destroy Krom's worship, he would not be denied the yearly souls he desired. So he rides into the night as the Doolahan, the physical embodiment of death itself. The Irish banshee gives warnings of death when it cries. The Doolahan summons the soul of the dying person. So if its decapitated head calls your name, your demise is imminent and unavoidable. If you ever wondered what inspired the White Walkers from Game of Thrones, the Draugr in Norse mythology is a good start. At first glance, you might think the Draugr is just an undead folklore creature, or a zombie, but they're much more than that. Draugr were formerly humans, just everyday normal Norse people from Scandinavia. Upon that person's death, though, they became a supernatural undead monster. People could turn into a Draugr through some curse, or even if that person had immense willpower, literally forcing their essence back into their corpse, leading to some ancient Viking warriors having to be killed twice. Their skin is obviously undead-looking, usually dark blue or coal black or even just corpse pale. It's easy to know if one's around or if you're near its lair because they emit an overwhelming stench of decay and sickness, making even the most hardcore Viking warriors puke their guts out. Their motives are varied, from guarding treasure to just the enjoyment of inflicting suffering on people to getting even with those who cross them in life. They're not mindless like modern zombies. Draugr know who they are and what they intend to do. But they do seem to have lost something becoming undead, at least intellectually. So when it comes to mannerisms, they seem pretty off and creepy. Draugr have unbelievable strength, much stronger than a normal person, and have the ability to make themselves bigger whenever they want which also makes them a whole lot heavier. There's stories of these guys' corpses being really hard to move, resorting to pulleys and levers with many men helping. Draugr even have the ability to alter their form, to be much scarier or even transform into animals. They can swim through solid matter, 
able to re-solidify their bodies at will. That's usually how the Draugr escaped the tomb that they were put in when they died, or they turn into wisps of smoke to blow through the cracks. The ability can also be used to swim through walls and into homes, then re-solidify. So ancient Viking people could just be hanging out in their house, and all of a sudden, there's a Draugr. These things are spiteful towards the living, and are dangerous to anyone or anything they come across. Even animals. Because Draugr enjoy killing people's livestock, usually by turning into a monstrous form to scare the cows, goats, sheep, and chase them until they collapse dead from their exhaustion and fear. And beasts that get close to a Draugr's lair go completely insane, killing themselves somehow. They enjoy playing sadistic jokes, too, like shape-shifting into a cat, then jumping on a sleeping person's chest then making themselves heavier very slowly over time until that person dies of suffocation. Or turning into a giant bull with flayed-off skin running around going crazy just to freak people out. There's also stories of them turning into trolls to face Viking warriors, eviscerating those warriors to the bone with their massive claws. Luckily, Draugr, though supernatural, are still affected by the decay of their bodies. Eventually, they just decay to nothing. Draugr could also be killed by too much damage being done to their body, the second death being a permanent one. Often if you come across a Draugr in the wild, it's possible they could be protecting treasure. Being greedy and selfish in life could cause someone to become a Draugr upon death. So if that person had some treasure on them in life, or buried somewhere, it's almost a guarantee it's guarding it. But an encounter with a Draugr is not worth the loot. People in ancient Scandinavia were very wary of the dead rising from their grave, to the point that often steps were taken to prevent it, like a lot of weird ways to trick corpses into not knowing where they're buried, or to straight up brick the tomb shut, or placing iron on the corpse to keep it from rising from its grave, iron being a common tool to ward off supernatural creatures. If someone really got a Draugr's wrath, it could just eat the person, and rip them apart, but if a Draugr wants to, it can also drive somebody insane. They do this by entering the person's dreams, giving them intense nightmares. Draugr can basically take control of the entire dream, and the ways that they can torment somebody in this way is innumerable. Then the Draugr will leave some sort of gift in the person's bedchamber, making that person know that those dreams came from the Draugr, driving them further into paranoia. Draugr also have the power to put curses on people, like taking attributes away from someone, or not allowing certain attributes to get any better. They can also bring disease and pestilence to communities, spreading much contagion and affliction, as well as making an artificial darkness in certain areas, even if the sun's out. But there are different types of Draugr, and each one just as menacing. In the northern reaches of Scandinavia, where fishing is the main source of income and food, many fishermen drowning at once was common. The Norse cold seas are very foreboding, and incredibly unforgiving and dangerous. Many who perished would become restless dead, rising again as Draugr after drowning. These types would either take on the form of a headless man covered in seal skins, or the form of a normal man other than his head being made entirely out of seaweed.
in Slavic folklore, there's the confusing figure of Baba Yaga, the Witch of the Wild. She's confusing because sometimes she's a caring motherly figure, but at other times she's an evil murderous monster, delighting in consuming the flesh of those who have failed her. In some tales, she's the avatar of the forest and all wildlife within, while alternatively in other stories, she's malevolent and insidious towards those lost or traveling through the woods, or even eating children who happen to come across her. Baba Yaga appears as an old demonic-looking witch with an incredibly long nose. She has iron teeth. Her hair and clothing are unkept, dirty, and wild. Her eyes large, with tiny pupils sunk in her dark eye sockets. An old woman who's literally skin and bones. Encounters with Baba Yaga usually take place deep in the woods at her hut, which stands on giant chicken legs with a rooster head popping out the top. Around the hut is a fence made entirely out of human bones. Some bones old, some bones new, with ever-abundant victims to replace the falling parts of the fence. Lots of stories about Baba Yaga involve a hero. The heroes encounter the Witch of the Wild in her hut, where they usually find her stooped over her oven, which extends from one side of the hut to the other, which can give you a hint of her large size and magical power. In these stories, the Baba Yaga goes from helping the hero to being the antagonist, so depending on which one it is, the Baba Yaga isn't always going to be an evil monster. She'll send the hero of the story on quests and make them answer riddles, basically making the hero run around everywhere, making the person do various tasks. But at the same time, she can be very harmful, though she doesn't usually go after people to harm them unless she's been provoked in some way. But anyone who comes to her hut is fair game. The Baba Yaga doesn't really follow any rules of morality. She does, however, always keep her promises, so when she offers the hero a reward for some task, she always follows through. You'll find many tropes about classic fairy tales and stories about her. Still, even the extremely dark and disturbing tales of the Baba Yaga don't really portray her in any great sense. The stories always focus on the hero. The Baba Yaga, just a witch that they encounter. So, there's a theme in the stories of clever heroes who use more brains than brawn, and gathering the ingredients to her latest potion concoction is also a common theme for the tasks the heroes to carry out to claim the reward. But the tasks can be supernatural as well, like being shrunk and sent into a music box, having to hop around and climb on the spinning gears within. It's interesting how she's never portrayed as blatantly evil. The Baba Yaga is more a force of nature, a neutral but indifferent being to human suffering or death. In many tales, the hero would have never gotten to the climax of the story without the Baba Yaga's help. In one tale, there's a young girl who lives with her stepmother and stepsisters who are horrible human beings. They live in a house secluded in the woods, and the girl's stepfamily treat her very abusively. It's pretty much a Cinderella tale. One day, a stepsister orders her to go out into the woods at night and bring back a source of new light. The girl struggles through the dark woods and stumbles upon the Baba Yaga's hut. The girl answers the Witch of the Wild's riddles, then is given incredibly challenging chores to do by the witch. The young girl completes the tasks and is rewarded with a lantern made out of a human skull. When she returns through the dark woods to her home, guided by the illumination of the skull lantern, 
Upon entering, seeing her stepmother and stepsisters, the Skull Lantern burns them alive, turning them into charcoal husks. So the Baba Yaga was a challenge for the girl, as well as her savior from her cruel stepfamily. The Witch of the Wild is very dangerous, though, and basically traumatized the young girl before rewarding her with the Skull Lamp, and those who come to her hut and disrespect her in any way suffer a terrible death, as well as anyone who won't play her riddle game, or fail at it, or fail in any of the tasks she gives them. Hey listeners, Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes as well as all popular podcast apps and web hosts. Or please visit us at crypticchroniclespodcast.com for full content. Send us an email, we would love to hear from you. Join us on our social media to keep updated. And thanks for supporting the show. Please leave us a good review on iTunes to help grow the podcast. But most of all, thanks for listening. Originating in the Philippines, the Manananggal is a horrific type of female monster with vampiric qualities. Manananggal are also sometimes referred to as Tick-Tick as well. This is because a tiny bird follows the monster around, and if you hear the Tick-Tick sound of the bird, it means the Manananggal will be arriving shortly. The word Manananggal translates to one who detaches. Because the monster detaches the upper part of its body from the lower part and grows massive bat-like wings able to carry the upper torso in flight. A pretty gnarly transformation, but it only does this at night. During the day, a man in Angle is wholly attached and poses as a beautiful young woman. The monster uses her human form to spy and trick people for the purpose of easy victims when the night comes. She manipulates the naive, being lured to become her next victim to devour. It requires a magic ritual in order for her to transform into her monstrous form and then back again, starting with the anointment of a certain type of oil over its body. The enormous wings sprout from her back, her teeth mutate into razor-sharp fangs, and her tongue transforms into a long hose-like appendage with a sharp tip. During the process of the transformation, the Menanangal emits terrifying shrieks repeatedly. Then it pulls itself away from the lower half and flies off into the night to feed on a victim. The lower half is left behind on the ground somewhere in a discreet location. The men in Angol prefers to feed on women, or babies, but mostly on fetuses inside a pregnant mother. It uses its long syringe-like tongue to suck out human entrails and organs, feeding on them with great enjoyment. When it finds a pregnant victim, it will land on the roof then wait patiently until everyone in the household is asleep. Then it sticks its long tongue through a hole it makes in the roof, and sucks the fetus's organs and entrails right out of the sleeping mother. If you survive an encounter with one, it's almost assured to leave you deformed in some way. Luckily, there's a lot of ways to defend yourself against a Menanangal. Holy water, ash, salt, and garlic are all tools to use against them, as well as spices, vinegar, and onions. And for some reason they fear daggers, but not any other weapons. Though despite all that, there's only one way to actually kill a Menanangal, 
and that's to find the hiding spot it left the lower part of its body when it detached and went into the night to feed. No easy task. But if you do find the lower part of the Menangal, fill it with all the stuff it doesn't like. You know, garlic and onions and whatnot. When the monster returns to reattach before dawn, it won't be able to. Then it'll be killed by the sun when it rises. Victorian England was terrorized by a leaping maniac by the name of Springheeled Jack. Sightings of Jack go all the way back to the year 1837. Many think he was a devil given form, and Springheeled Jack cut a path of destruction and horror all the way across 19th century London. Back in those days, London was basically the capital of the world. It was kind of like how New York City is today. Most monster legends and folklore usually take place in desolate or more discreet places but not Jack. He terrorized the greatest city in the world at that time, which makes him unique among monster legends. The first reported encounter with Jack was the least disastrous, but it spread word about him and what he looked like and planted the seed that would inspire fear in Londoners. In this first encounter, the man spotted Jack from very far away. Creeped out, the man tried to walk away as fast as possible. Then all of a sudden, Springhilled Jack jumped high into the air and landed directly in front of the man, scaring the crap out of him. But Jack did let the man run away unharmed, and he would go on to tell everyone he ran into about the jumping devil he encountered, which spread the legend throughout the city. Springhilled Jack preferred to attack women, but at the beginning of his story, he committed more harassments than actual attacks. But the encounters did get steadily more dangerous. Jack would ring doorbells, and when someone answered the door, he would shred their clothes with his razor-sharp talons. Or he would just ambush people on the streets, scaring people half to death. Reports of the monster would only increase in the following years, but then Jack's real attacks would begin. He attacked one woman, tearing her clothes off, presumably to rape her. She screamed as loud as she could, which got the attention of nearby people, so they ran over to help her. Jack jumped impossibly high into the air and then vanished into the night. This encounter is interesting because it had so many witnesses, and when a bunch of people who never met and have nothing to do with each other tell the same exact tale, it brings validity to a community. Jack has various descriptions, but they're similar for the most part. It's said he can breathe out blue fire, and his eyes are like red fireballs. His hands are sharp claws that are cold as ice. He wears a dark cloak, and tight-fitting white oilskin clothing. His features are demonic and grotesque, with a wide, sharp-toothed grin. One famous attack has Springhilled Jack jumping out of nowhere to attack two sisters. Jack breathed his blue flame into one of their faces, which caused the woman to collapse into a seizure. Though the two sisters survived mostly unharmed. From all the attention his attacks were getting, Springhilled Jack basically became a boogeyman across all England. Parents would tell their children that if they didn't behave, then the jumping devil would come snatch them up. If there were any unsolved crimes in London, they would just say Jack did it to sell more papers. And it was around this time that Springhilled Jack would be solidified as a legend in Victorian culture.
Some monsters take a more subtle approach when hunting victims. The curry will attach themselves to them, following them home. Then they'll slowly start to torment their victim. The curry is very subtle at first, being mostly just beyond the veil of the material world, which means people who have a curry aren't even usually aware of it for quite some time. But slowly, the curry will give its victim hints about its existence over the span of weeks, if not months. In the beginning, it's just otherworldly whispers. When the victim sleeps, it reveals themselves to it in their dreams. When awake, the curry will touch them randomly with their cold, invisible fingers. As the victim's fear and bewilderment grows, so too will the curry's fun, its presence becoming more and more profound as time goes by, and they'll pull terrifying tricks on their victims, like pulling your leg out of the bed when you're sleeping, or attacking the victim in traumatizing nightmares. When the victim talks to close family members or friends, the curry supernaturally puts its own face onto them, making it impossible for the victim to go to anybody for help, because no matter who they turn to, there's the curry. But the curry will never reveal itself to anybody but the victim, which creates cracks in their sanity. Eventually, the creature wants to return to the grave where it first latched onto the victim. The person, usually on the brink of total insanity by then, complies. Mostly, though, because the curry promises freedom from its torment if it's returned, which would allow the person to live a normal life again. The curry says it will guide the victim back to the correct grave because the person rarely remembers, especially in their demented state of mind. It continues to encourage the victim that they're close, that they're almost there, and to just keep going. In truth, though, the victim is just wandering around the wild erratically and eventually the victim will be too exhausted, dehydrated, and starving to go any further. As the victim slowly dies to the elements while starving, the curry tells the person how much it's going to enjoy dragging their soul to hell. In the freezing lands of the Inuit tribes live a race of shadow people. The Teriaxic, as they're called, are very similar to the way normal human beings live their lives. They have families and homes, use tools and build things. The Teriaxic use weapons to fight and can think with logical awareness, among other similarities. You can't look directly at one, though, because it would instantaneously vanish to its own world, which is kind of like an alternate reality. This place is their domain, just like material Earth is ours. And for some reason because of this, they can't be directly looked at. But their shadow is always clear as day. And by attacking where that shadow is, you could actually kill a Teriaxic. Only then will it become visible. The Teriaxic can also be heard in some conditions. Like if you hear footsteps in the woods at night and no one's there, it's actually them looking at you. It's normal to hear talking or laughing which is usually heavily unnerving to the listener. According to legend, some Inuit have managed to travel over into their world, with many never returning. Their world is right between the material world and the spirit world, so they partially inhabit both, and are even able to perceive both at the same time. They're very shy, always vanishing when any human comes remotely close to them. If invited to their world through some chance, 
they can actually be seen clearly. They dress in typical Eskimo-type clothes, and look extremely similar to humans, except their faces are featureless and they have white glowing eyes. And just like us, they eat, drink, sleep. Despite the similarities, the Teriaxic are really creepy in their alien nature, but they won't usually attack humans. And that's because they see it as unfair because we can't see them. So they have a sense of honor, and for the most part aren't a threat. The Skinwalker is a notorious supernatural monster from Native American legend. They're shapeshifters, who were at one point normal humans. They can transform into any animal they want, though sometimes the animal is twisted and demonically grotesque. The Navajo tribe in particular have an immense amount of lore surrounding Skinwalkers. They can be medicine men gone dark side, or practitioners of witchcraft who are initiated into becoming a skinwalker by performing horrible acts as symbolism that they are leaving their humanity behind. Acts like murdering a close family member, incest, or necrophilia. After the ceremony, the person is gifted with dark supernatural power and an urge to do harm. There are even ranks within skinwalkers, the highest being Tlesiati, which translates to pure evil. When they shapeshift, they usually transform into a wolf, coyote, eagle, fox, or a crow. But it's only because the abilities of those creatures is what's currently needed. There are no limits on what type of animal a skinwalker can transform into. If they need to get somewhere fast, they'll change into a bird. If they need immense strength, they'll turn into a bear, etc. There are Navajo tales of skinwalkers stealing the faces of people, too. Or, if you make eye contact, it can absorb itself into your body. Sometimes they freeze their victims with their demonic eyes, the person consumed with paralyzing fear. Then, like a vampire, the skinwalker will absorb the person's life force, giving it energy and power. When they're in their human form wishing to go unnoticed, they're very hairy people often seen wearing the skins of animals. To the untrained eye, it allows them to pass themselves off as just regular everyday people among the tribe. As evil monsters, it's obvious the normal people of the tribe would be polarized to their presence, leading to the Native Americans to hunt down and try and slay the beast. The skinwalker usually not only evades the hunters, but messes with them as well, like leading the tracker to their home, or the home of a loved one. And the skinwalker will definitely take offense to being hunted, so attempting to kill one is only for the reckless or the suicidally brave. But if you do track one and it gets away, if you happen to injure it when it was in its animal form, when it changes back into a human, it'll have the same injury. A solid way to kill a skinwalker is to find out the skinwalker's former name when it was human. Then you speak that name, and three days later the skinwalker will grow ill, and die. But that's harder to do than it seems. Also, skinwalkers are very vulnerable on their neck to weapons or bullets dipped in white ash, and a direct wound would prove fatal to the skinwalker. They also have insane powers to mess with people's heads they can use strategically, always giving themselves the advantage. Skinwalkers are telepathic, 
and know what you're going to do before you do it. And they can perfectly imitate any animal or human noise at will. And that's despite what form they've currently shapeshifted into. Mix that with reading minds, and there's no end to the mental trauma and horror they can inflict. They can cry out from the woods, saying they're badly injured using the voice of that person's lover, luring them out of the safety of their home to their doom, or use the voice of the victim's child. They can literally drive people insane by doing this, such as imitating a deceased close family member, then reading the person's mind to say the most maddening things possible to them. Skimwalkers are very sadistic. But those abilities are also very useful when killing multiple victims at a time, luring them away from one another, or causing infighting between them. Also, a skinwalker isn't even able to enter somebody's home without expressed permission. So these powers are ideal to trick someone into giving them access, or to lure them outside the safety of their home. You can tell if an animal is actually a skinwalker if they seem to be moving around unnaturally, and stiffly, or just bizarrely in a way that a real animal wouldn't. Though sometimes it's quite obvious, because the skinwalker may intentionally shapeshift to appear more monstrous. Though skinwalkers are shapeshifters, they were originally practitioners of medicine, and used their magic and witchcraft greatly to their own advantage. They used spells and charms, usually to instill fear or control over someone. They'll gather a victim's hair, or nail trimmings, and perform dark rituals that either aid them or lead to the demise of their victim. If a person of a tribe's personal belongings go missing, they may worry, because a skinwalker could use them against them. Skinwalkers also utilize a powder called corpse dust, which is ground-up bones of infants, then given dark powers through a cursed ritual. The skinwalker can blow this powder into a victim's face, which makes their tongue black and swollen, and then die soon after from convulsions. The corpse dust can also be used to get around the whole not being able to enter houses without permission thing, by dropping a large amount down chimneys or through ventilation. Anyone inside the home will die shortly after breathing it. Skinwalkers should not be confused with medicine men, who are good practitioners of the magical arts, and some can also transform into sacred totem animals also known as spirit animals. Medicine men are healers, spiritual guides, and are in tune with the spirit of nature, similar to priests or shamans of other cultures. They don't do evil things and are highly regarded in Native American tribes. Skinwalkers, on the other hand, they go out of their way to commit evil deeds as much as possible. It's amazing there's as much known about skinwalkers as there is out there, because when asked about them, Native Americans are very unwilling to talk about them with outsiders. And this isn't because of some xenophobic thing. It's out of a sense of self-preservation, because the skinwalkers could be watching, or could later read their thoughts. So they don't talk about them because they wish to avoid the wrath of a skinwalker. Which is a pretty good idea, because that's a horrific demise any sane person would seek to avoid. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. If you liked this episode of Monster Legends Part 2, then check out the Chronicler's Vault at crypticchroniclespodcast.com for Monster Legends Part 1, where I cover a bunch of other monsters. 
and please comment and tell me what you think, or follow Cryptic Chronicles on social media. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and thanks for listening.